We say and uh, we pray about and we hope that you always find RUF a safe place. Uh, We want RUF to be a safe place for the convinced and the unconvinced alike to come together and examine the true claims of Christianity. Another way to put that is that we want RUF to be a safe place for skeptics, people that have questions, and we want RUF to be a rest stop for weary Christians uh, because we're all weary. So we just hope you find it a safe place. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4 tonight. This was a passage, it's uh, the passage right after um, what we looked at last week. We looked at Jesus' temptation last week, and I just could not get away from this passage. At some point, we've got to start skipping some things. But I could not get away from this passage that Luke uh, wants to tell this story right after the temptation. So we're going to look. I forget if I added this to your sheet or not, but we're going to read uh, Luke 4, verses 14 through 30. This is God's Word. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out to all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him. And marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard, you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, they went away. He went away. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, we thank you for your word. We would ask only one thing, that you would speak to us. We pray it in Jesus', Jesus name. Amen. Um, we look at something tonight. This is, I, this is just something I, I couldn't get away, get away from in this passage. Um, that we look at something tonight that every single one of us in this room is familiar with. Rejection. Right? We've all felt the sting of it. We all fear it like the plague, and we will all do anything to avoid it. We hate 
being rejected in any shape or form. We're asking the question this semester, Doctor Who? Doctor because Luke was a physician and he wrote this gospel. Um, And who because Luke wants us to know, he wants us to have certainty about just who this Jesus is. And for some reason, Luke tells us tonight that Jesus was rejected. Jesus, I mean, Luke wants you to have certainty about who this Jesus is. And the first thing G- Luke is going to tell you about Jesus' public ministry is that he went to his hometown and they tried to kill him. I don't know about you, but I don't know how good of a defense that is. That's what we're going to look at tonight, okay? I've got three things there for you. Uh, and the first one I want to look at is rejecting the message. Rejecting the message. What does Jesus say? What is it that Jesus is getting at that they don't like or that they don't understand, okay? So apparently after Jesus' uh, baptism and then after his temptation, he starts his public ministry. We're told he heads out into Galilee. He starts traveling around. He starts doing miracles. He's visiting synagogues. He's teaching. He's preaching. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew actually has nine whole chapters of things that happened in between the temptation of Jesus and with the story that we read here. Which makes it all the more intriguing that Luke takes all that out and wants to take us straight from the temptation, straight to this hometown episode where Jesus goes home and he has this chance to impress his, his home crowd and they want to kill him. What goes wrong here, right? So we find him coming back to his hometown. His custom is to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. A custom in a synagogue would to be to get a notable teacher uh, to stand up and read from the scrolls of the scriptures and then to expound on it. And that's exactly what Jesus does. So Jesus stands up. He's handed the scroll from Isaiah. But then we're told that he found this passage. He goes looking for it. He finds it. And what he finds in the scroll of Isaiah is what is to us Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Now look at that um, in your Bible or on your handout there. Uh, if you look at verses, verses 18 and 19, uh, chapter 4, I just want to break down this passage really quick, okay? But think about, think about the context. J- Jesus has gained popularity. He's got the buzz going for him, okay? He's got the marketing strategy going for him. He's got all the momentum behind him. He's in his hometown. He has this real opportunity to make a splash. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah, one of the richest books in the Bible and longest. And this is the passage he goes looking for. This is the one he wants to read. And this is the one that he does read. Now quick, if you just look at there, the, the, the things that stick out is one, that liberation is promised to four different types of people. The poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. Okay, think about this. Jesus is going to use this passage to drop the bomb on his home crowd that this is who he is and this is what he's come to do. And these are the kind of people that he's come for. That's what, that's what he wants to tell him. But the biggest overtone of the passage is actually, look at verse 19. He ends the reading of his passage with to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here, right here, as Jesus reads it, and back in Isaiah, when you read it in Isaiah, it's a clearly a reference to something called the year of Jubilee. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, uh, but Jubilee is something that God commands as far as the Israelites organizing their calendar. Um, in Leviticus chapter 25, this is what God has to say about the year of Jubilee. He says this, you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. 
It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So think about this. This, um, And there's much more I could read to you about the jubilee, but I'm going to sum it up. This is what jubilee was. Jubilee was a time of blanket amnesty. It's a buzzword these days, huh? God is all about some amnesty. Setting slaves free from their... In the 50th year, all the slaves in the land were to be set free from their servitude, no matter how or why they were in that servitude. Jubilee is also a time of blanket redemption. In the year of Jubilee, all debtors are released from all of their debts. So in other words, you buy a new house in the 49th year. I don't know if that's how it worked, but probably not. All debtors are released from all their debts, no matter how they accrued those debts in the year of Jubilee. Year of Jubilee is also a time of blanket restoration. Lost property returned to their rightful owners, no matter how they lost that property. In other words, the year of Jubilee is the greatest year on the calendar. Okay, y'all feeling that? Everybody wants it to be Jubilee. Can't wait for Jubilee. Okay? And the prophecy of Isaiah in 61 is pointing to this. What the prophecy of Isaiah 61 is pointing to is the Jubilee to end all Jubilees. That's the portion that Jesus reads. Okay? So if we take all that in and we think about it, that sounds pretty awesome. So why do these people end up wanting to kill him? What's going on? The hint there is in verse 22. You look at verse 22. We read that they spoke well of him and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. We read that in a southern way. Like the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth that like he spoke well or he sounded good. And that may definitely be a part of it. But the Greek, um, I don't usually do this, but the Greek literally means they were amazed, not necessarily like in a good way. They were just, they were kind of astounded at his words of grace. Words of grace. Okay, you look at the passage, that makes sense. That looks like it's about grace, about good things happening to people that don't necessarily deserve it. But, here's the thing. Was anybody listening to the call to worship from Isaiah 61 earlier tonight? Because the thing about the passage that Jesus reads is he doesn't read the whole thing. He stops at to proclaim the years of the Lord's favor. But if you actually turn to Isaiah 61 and you look at Isaiah 61 verse 2, you'll see that there's one whole sentence that Jesus only reads the half of. This is how the whole sentence goes. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Interesting. All right. Let me boil this down for you. The whole context here. Okay. 400 years before Jesus, the Jews got to leave exile and return to Jerusalem and rebuild it, okay? So, meaning, uh, for f- over f- for nearly 500 years, the Jews as a people have not had their own king, and they've been ruled and reigned by other empires and other kingdoms. And Isaiah 61, written 800 years before, is explicitly about a time when there would be one that would come that would end all of that. And the way that he would end it would be by setting people free and vanquishing all of God's and God's people's enemies. Okay? 
But here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is explicitly saying, he explicitly rolls the scroll up when he half ends that sentence. And he's saying that the time of grace has come. The time for judgment has not. And this is what I'm telling you. The people did not like that. The people in Nazareth did not like that. In other words, what was happening was Jesus was not telling them what they wanted to hear. In other words, they were not hearing what they wanted to hear. And they're mad at Jesus about it. And that's what eventually leads them to want to kill him. Okay, and we read, look, we read what Jesus read and we think that Jesus is telling them everything that they would ever want to hear. And he is. That's the thing. That's what's weird about it. But it's not what they wanted to hear. What did they want to hear? They wanted to hear, I'm getting my army together and we're about to go wax some Caesar Augustus. That's what they wanted to hear. Okay? They didn't hear what they wanted to hear. Now, here's the thing. Each and every one of us in here is going to have to answer something for ourselves. Think about this. What is the root of your doubt? We all struggle with doubts. Don't pretend you don't. What is the root of your struggle with doubt? What is the root of your struggle with assurance? This thing that you keep pining after that I just wish I knew for sure something, anything. What is at the root of your longing to know just what to do? I just want to know what to do, something, anything. And the root of your bewilderment at not having a clue. This is what you have to answer for yourselves. It's this. Is it that God has not made it clear to you? Or is it that you don't like what he has to say? That's what's happening here in Nazareth. That's the picture that we're getting. And you know, for yourself, for for us individually, practically, I can tell you right away one of the biggest areas that you can identify this for yourself in your life. And it has to do with the way that you view or handle going to or attending church. Okay, I'm not talking about like your view of the church biblically. I'm just talking about the very act of like, I need to go to church and so I do sometimes. Or I'm trying to look for a church to belong to one and, and so I'm trying to figure all that out. And I saw this brilliant comic strip on Facebook today and I actually shared it. Maybe you saw me share it if you're friends with me on Facebook. If you like to creep my Facebook, it's okay. Um, I have pretty kids, it's okay. Um, this is how the comic strip went. It was just two guys talking to each other. This is how it went. One guy says this. Does your preacher preach the Bible? Yeah. Is he theologically sound? I think so. What are the small groups like? I don't know. Do you hang out with other members? You mean other than on Sunday? Are you a member? I think so. Okay, so tell me one more time why you're leaving the church. I just don't feel like I'm being fed. I love that. It's so true. It's sad. Right? That this person doesn't actually has no connection to the church, but he doesn't feel like he's getting what he wants or needs. Look at, look at what Jesus says here. Look at what Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says and why Jesus reads this. Jesus says that he is the one that has come to proclaim good news to who? The poor. The poor. 
Now, does that mean people with money are out of luck? Well, okay, there's all over the Bible. The Bible clearly takes up the plight of people who are materially poor. It continually warns against our neglect of the materially poor. But also, over and over again in the Bible, what you'll see is that the term poor is over and over again used to denote the spiritually poor. Those who are spiritually in need. Those who are spiritually bankrupt. Think about the beatitude on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What Jesus is trying to get across here, the message he's trying to get across here is, this is indeed good news because these people, the people that he's talking to, and he points outside of Nazareth, saying everybody, even the dirty Romans, are spiritually poor. Jesus is telling them their greatest need was to have that need met. Meaning that their standard of living in Nazareth or their physical ailments, physically or uh, health-wise, political oppression from the Romans, all of those pale in comparison to what they need spiritually. Perhaps maybe, maybe this clicks with you tonight. Maybe it doesn't. But perhaps it does. Some awareness of spiritual poverty actually does click with you tonight. Things, you just look at everything in your life right now, and you're just like, as hard as you work, as hard as you try to get everything in a row, things just never add up for you. And no matter how much you keep feeding and feeding and feeding, you feel empty and worthless. And no matter what you turn to, you still can't find happiness or affirmation. You can't find joy. And week after week, you just feel empty. Here's the question. If you're aware of that, if you sense something like that in your life, here's the question. Do you find yourself poor because the circumstances aren't lining up? Or do you find yourself poor because you need God? Jesus is coming along and saying, hey, you Nazarenes, my hometown crew... You need something that is so much greater than what you're actually looking for. And that's the message, and these people reject that, at least at the beginning here. What's the second thing? Look at this, if we move on here. They reject the message, but they also reject the man. They reject Jesus himself, okay? So the Nazarenes, they're at... Uh, The synagogue, they're trying to process everything Jesus is saying. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, Jesus says, Today, today, right now, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay? All of this, the whole message, everything it symbolized, Jesus sits down and he tells all of them, all of it finds its fulfillment in me. That's what he's saying. Jesus does not pussyfoot around this issue. The gospel writers clearly have Jesus explicitly and boldly claiming to be the one. He says, the anointed one, that is me. You've grown up reading your Bibles, reading about this one who would come. Jesus sits down and drops the bomb. By the way, you just witnessed that. Mind blown. And here's the thing. They really only have two options. They have two options, okay? Either Jesus was really the one, or he's a presumptuous, egotistical maniac. Think about that. With what Jesus claims there, they only have two options to believe what he says. Either he is what he says he is, or he's just an egotistical maniac. He's crazy. 
And we're told that they're trying to figure it out. They say to themselves, isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, they're saying, isn't he just one of us? Isn't he from around here? Shouldn't he be making my table with his daddy, the carpenter? Doesn't he know what we think about Isaiah 61? Why would he read that and then not read the whole thing? Okay, and here's another one. You can Google it for yourself. Jesus was not the first or the last person to claim to be the Messiah. Google that one for yourself. Maccabean revolts. Boom. Anyway, I know everybody's going to rush home and Google that. Um, And I don't want you to fall asleep, so I'm not going to tell you about it. But here's the thing. Don't we do this too? What? It's what the Nazarenes do. It's just Jesus, isn't it? It's just Jesus. Um, I, I meant to work this into my sermon when we talked about the birth of Jesus, but I'm going to work it in right here. There is a sense, this scene is hilarious. There is a sense in which all of us, in some degree or another, are Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights. Y'all know what scene I'm talking talk, talk about here? They're sitting there around the table. I can't even get through this. It's so funny. They're all seated around the table. And they're eating dinner, and Ricky Bobby, Will Ferrell, is going to pray for the meal. And this is just a little edit of how it goes. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we thank you for this bountiful harvest of Domino's pizza, KFC fried chicken, and, of course, Taco Bell. Thank you for my beautiful boys, Walker and Texas Ranger. (laughs) Thank you for my wife's father, Chip. And we hope you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal his leg. Then his buddy, I can't remember what his buddy's name is, says this. You know, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo shirt because it says, I'm here to party, but I'm formal too. Because I like to party too. Anyway, I love that scene because there is a bit of that. There is some degree of that in every single one of us. Okay? And you have to ask yourself this question. Who is Jesus to you? Have you thought about that? Have you dealt with that? You've heard of Jesus. Maybe you've grown up hearing him all your life. Maybe you just don't want to deal with him. But have you thought about it? Who is Jesus of Nazareth to you? I'm telling you tonight, you have to deal with that in some shape or form. And you have, but you need to think about it. Is he the Jesus that's just been sold to you all your life? Maybe even crammed down your throat all your life. Is he the Jesus that's just like the hypocrites that claim him? Is he the Jesus that just happened to say some cool things here and there and we like to put it on post-it notes or tweet it? Is he sweet baby Jesus (laughs) that's here to give you a gold star when you do good or something? This This is it. Is he the Jesus you want or is he this Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth whom the gospel writers tell us knew exactly who he was, knew exactly what he came to do, and knew exactly who he came for, and was very explicit about it. Who is Jesus to you? Because the deal with this Jesus is you only have two options. Either he was who he said he was, or he was full of it. There's no middle ground there. There can't be. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, he quotes this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Okay, they didn't have advanced medicine back then. Doctors were not people that people universally trusted. I don't know about you, but like I never ask questions when I go to the doctor. I just assume they know everything. And that's so wrong. They don't know everything. They mess things up. But 
I mean, we kind of have this view of doctors today. Like they, they, oh, you sure that test sounds great. I have no idea what it's for, but whatever. Um, they just want you to pay a thousand dollars to check your tooth or something. I don't know. Um, they were not universally trusted back then. People were pretty skeptical of doctors and something that they would say to someone who had an offering of healing was prove it by healing yourself. And so Jesus is sensing this skepticism directed at him among, in the crowd as they're trying to process what he said. And here's the thing. This is one of those instances where it's safe to ask, why didn't just Jesus just do something? Okay, we just read that he's been traveling around doing things and amazing people. Now he's in his hometown, and they've heard about him doing amazing things, and they want him to do something. Why couldn't Jesus just have done something? It's a fair question to ask, right? Next week, we'll actually see the next thing he does um, is a series of miracles. He cleanses a leper. He heals a paralytic. He heals a man with a withered hand. But what does he do in his hometown? What does he do in his hometown? He tells them a story. Two of them, actually. From the Old Testament at that. The boring Old Testament. Interesting. This is what I want you to see that Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you want to know whether I'm really the one and you want me to show you. He says, okay, I'll show you. Let's look in the Bible. That's exactly what Jesus did. And you hate him for it. Just admit it. We do. Look back at verse 21. Look back at verse 21. This is amazing. He says, today, this very day, this very hour, this scripture is fulfilled. How was it fulfilled? They heard it. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning, I told you about it, and I told you it was true, therefore it is. That's what he tells them. And let's be honest, you hate that answer. This is what Jesus is saying. You want to know for sure? My word will tell you that it's sure. That's what he says. The spirit of the Lord has anointed me to do what? Proclaim good news. That's what the spirit of the Lord has anointed him to do. To tell people something. His word really is enough. Every single one of you in here, to the most ardent skeptic, to the most seasoned believer, has to deal with this question. Do you believe Jesus' word is true? You have to deal with that question. And here's the thing. If his word really is enough, I, I want you to see what that tells us. If his word really is enough, this is what that tells us. Jesus really is all that you need. Hear that again. If his word is true, what it means is Jesus really is the only thing that you need. Not a social revolution. Not a medical revolution. Not a political revolution. But liberation from spiritual bondage. That's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus really is all we need. And we read things like 2 Corinthians 8, 9 where we hear this. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The gospel 
really is for us in our bondage. Some of y'all know this more than you would ever let anyone know. That you have things that hold you captive no matter how much you want to be rid of them. And what Jesus is saying is that if his words really are true, he really is all that you need. Because he told us in his word. And what he's saying is we either take him on his terms or we take him not at all. We got to deal with that one way or another. The last thing is this. They've rejected the, the message. They've rejected the man. But ultimately what they do is they reject the Messiah, okay, and all that it entailed. They reject the Messiah, even though they are clearly waiting for one. They clearly believe there's going to be one. Even though the Old Testament clearly points to one. Even though Jesus explicitly claims to be that one, they reject him as Messiah. Why? Here it is. Because to believe in this Messiah... The one that's in this Bible requires two things. Faith and suffering. Faith and suffering. This is why they ultimately want to throw him off a cliff. Break the two down just really quickly. You get first one's faith. You got two Old Testament stories here. And this is what really sets them off. This is what they, why they want to throw him off a cliff. Jesus calls them on wanting a sign in order to believe. So he tells them about two heroes of the faith. Abraham... No. Moses? No. David? No. No, a widow in Zarephath in Zion, in Sidon, and a military commander from Syria. So think about it just briefly. Elijah, 1 Kings 17, you can read the story for yourself. Elijah is sent to a widow. The widow is in extreme poverty. Elijah asked her for bread. She says, I don't have anything. I can't even give you a bite to eat. God promises if she feeds the prophet, he will give her an everlasting supply of what she needs. And so she believes God and she does, she feeds Elijah and she gets a, a cup of oil that never runs out. Miracle, right? Second Kings chapter five, we read about this guy named Naaman, who's not only not a Jew, he's a military commander of the enemy, Syria. He's rich, he's wealthy, he's done everything he needs to do in life, but he's a leper, meaning he's walking dead. He goes to Elisha, who doesn't even host him in his house. Elisha just tells him to wash in the Jordan. So Naaman has a choice. Do I go in faith down into the water and be clean, or do I go look for something else? And ultimately, he's convinced to go try it, and he does, and he was clean. Here it is. The people in Nazareth demand a sign. Jesus points them to two heroes of the faith. Meaning... Both believed God's word through the prophets by faith. By faith, both of them witnessed God's power at work in their lives. They believed God would do what he did, what he said he would do, and then they saw it. Now, how does this apply to you? So many of you are hung up on what you're going to do for God. You cannot escape, what am I going to do? What am I supposed to do? So many of you are hung up on why you feel so insecure all the time. And what the gospel and Jesus come along is tell you, what do they tell you? Believe. Have faith. And you hate it. You hate that answer, right? It's like, I, I, 
I believe, right? I believe. I was saved. I was baptized. I had faith in Jesus when I was younger. I believed. I was baptized. I prayed a prayer. I wrote down the date. I believed. Why do you keep telling me to believe? But here's the thing. You have to see why you hate the answer just to have faith. Because when you think of faith, you're thinking about you. And no wonder you're insecure. Because it's all about you. That's the opposite of how the Bible defines faith. Faith is about believing in somebody else. And what somebody else has done. And how somebody else has done what needs to be done for you. But because it's about you, you are forever unsure. But here is the beauty of what we see right here. And we're going to see it the rest of the gospel. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. How do we see that? Well, it's the last one, suffering. And this is what so we'll see over and over in this gospel, what so many people miss. What happens here, and why Luke wants to point it out there at the front end of his gospel, is that if there is anything that Jesus makes clear, it's that in order for him to be the one that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 61, he was going to have to suffer. That's it. In order for him to be the one, he was going to have to suffer. Look look at the end of this passage. Does anything sound familiar here? Jesus claims to be God, and so they sentence him to death for blasphemy. They take him outside of the city to a hill to kill him. Does that sound familiar? Even the most casual reader of this gospel has to see that this Messiah, this Savior, will be exactly as Isaiah said in Isaiah 53. Are you familiar with it? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That is the Savior that Isaiah, God through Isaiah says he was going to send. And so that begs the question, why in the world would God send a Savior like that? Well, Isaiah goes on to say this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 700 years before the birth of a guy named Jesus from Nazareth, God clearly, explicitly, and boldly told us that he was going to send a rejected Savior. Why? To gather rejects like you and me. That's it. Jesus was rejected. Why? 
so that you would be accepted forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want this story so desperately to be true. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, that we could see, that we could hear, that we could believe that this is true, that the year of Jubilee has come. It's not something we have to wait for anymore. We pray that you'd help us see that. We help you. We pray that you would give us Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.